Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Today is another great day to change the world. So today we're talking about brand citizenship and how to do that for profit and purpose. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Ann Barr Thompson because we really dove into what it means to help leaders understand where their organizations are starting on the me to we continuum. The things we talked about are different ways individuals and companies can be change agents and CEOs and leaders can also be change agents, right? We live in a world where we expect more from our companies right now. We expect and hold them accountable to things like society values as well as, you know, ethos and and many of those type of situations. So we dive into her five-step model that integrates doing good activities with brand development. So it's pretty interesting. If you've ever thought about brand citizenship and how to be a change agent in an organization and how you as an employee or a leader can make a difference with your company, this is an episode for you. Enjoy. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's episode is with Ann Barr Thompson. And she has been inspiring business leaders to use their brands as motivating force for change for many years. At the start of the millennium, she began to identify how people's connections to companies were turning upside down before any others noticed its import. Having more than 25 years experience as a global brand strategist, she's also an accomplished researcher, a writer, a speaker, and the pioneer of the strategic framework of brand citizenship. I'm really excited to get into that. A former executive director of strategy and planning and head of consultant at Interbrand, the world's leading brand consultancy, and founded 164th, a boutique consultancy to integrate culture shifts and a social conscience into brand development. So as you can see, we were talking before the show, and Ann and I were uh, remarking about our um, similar uh, ideologies, uh, just because basically we both have this consultancy that's focused on encouraging um, social impact. And so I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. We're going to talk about her her book, Do Good, Embracing Brand Citizenship and Fueling for Both Profit and uh, Purpose. Welcome to the show, Ann. Hey, welcome. Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome. It's okay. Myself. I was making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I was making so many mistakes reading your bio. Um, but 
I'm really, really excited to have you on the show, not only because you're going to talk about the importance of brand citizenship, but I think your framework is the thing that stands out to me the most, you know, the idea of, of how to, to become a good brand citizen. But before I dive into that, I want to really peel back some of these layers, you know, cut through these onions and uh, of who Ann Barr Thompson is. How did you get started to this? What was the beginning for you? Um, in terms of identifying brand citizenship, actually, a lot of people assume because the idea of purpose and doing good is trendy that I went out and decided to create my own model. And actually, that's not at all what happened. Mm. Um, in 2011, I was running at the end of 2011, I was running some trend research uh, to find if I'm going to be perfectly honest, we were looking for 12 lighthearted trends for 2012 to go out there. Um, as part of new business development, talking to companies. And what emerged from this research that we conducted in both the U.S. and the U.K. was something that was far more important and far greater than, than I expected and something I couldn't ignore. Under the surface of people's comments about their hopes and dreams for the coming year, as well as the brands they thought were would be good leaders and the brands they thought were good and brands they thought were bad corporate citizens was this notion that they wanted businesses to step in and fix problems that they didn't think government was able to do. And if you remember, the end of 2011 to 2012 was another election year um, for the U.S. president. And it was a different election than the one we had more recently. Right. However, there were still a lot of issues and there still was a lot of partisanship. Yeah. And people both in the U.S. and the U.K. were really frustrated that government was not fixing things and they wanted business to step in. So as a result of this, as well as the companies, which we can get into later, um, that they identified as good corporate citizens, which really took me aback, I decided to deconstruct uh corporate citizenship from brand leadership and from favorite brands, which is a proxy from brand loyalty. And I granted myself money to do research over three years. And what emerged was this five-step model of brand citizenship. So it's something that came from the grassroots up. It wasn't something that I set out to create or we sat in a, a, a conference room or a boardroom and, and determined a model. It's what people were calling for which is why I think when people learn about it, it makes so much sense and, and seems logical because it's what people are asking for, um, not what a company is crafting to do. I love it. I love it. And can you dive into the five steps? Because I, I know, you know after reading the book, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's trust, enrichment, responsibility, community, and contribution. But I have a feeling that you know, the audience might be interested in, in uh these steps because I think you you have a, such a the way you write it the way you talk about it in the book is so unique and it's um it's engaging so I want the audience to get a little taste of that. Okay, so um uh, and stop me if I go too far because sometimes I get really passionate and you have to <laughs> say enough enough. We love Slow passion down. here. <laughs> um, yeah. So what's most interesting about well, actually, there's a lot of interesting things about the model, but one of the most interesting aspects is that the model starts with trust. And anyone who's been in branding, communications, or marketing historically has thought of trust as the end game. Even people in corporate reputation management assume once you're trusted, you've made it. Well, actually, what we learned through our research was that 
trust is the first step in forming a relationship between a customer, an employee, stakeholder, and a company or a brand. And a brand is a human side of a company. So it's a proxy for the company in the way we think about it. So we begin with trust and trust is doing what you say. And it makes sense in today's world um, where so many people overpromise mm. that the starting point of a relationship is delivering on what you've promised. And if you think about your friends, your best friends are the friends you can rely on to do anything they say. They never don't deliver. And it's no different with a brand. A brand has to deliver what it says over and over and over again. So it's in part about reliability. It's also in part about clarity and understanding what to expect from them. Because when you think about your friends, the most reliable are the ones you know where they're coming from. Yeah. You know, you know, you know who they are, you know what they're about. And the brands that we know who they are and what they're about, we know what to expect to them, from them. So when they deliver reliably, we trust them more and more. Um, it's also about sincerity, speaking from the heart. Today, people often talk about authenticity. And whilst I use that word as well, I like to shift people to think of authenticity more as sincerity. Because one thing I learned way back in 2006, when I first started investigating millennials, was that millennials, and today it's everybody, understands that we contrive our online personalities to be authentic. So a lot of times your backstory is made to seem authentic when it's a bit contrived. And because of that, the notion of speaking from the heart is more important than being authentic, in quotes. So to build trust, it's about this clarity, reliability, sincerity. It's about giving to give, not giving to get. So when, when you're developing a loyalty program or doing a giveaway, it's not because you as a business, you as a company are looking to get something. You're actually freely giving information or freely giving something away. And active listening. And in today's world where everyone's collecting our data, it's rather disturbing that companies use this data just to cross-sell to us. <laughs> um, and people told us that to be really trustworthy, you have to start using what you know about me to better my life. And that notion of give to give, not to get, and active listening start transitioning you as a business from being trustworthy as a brand, as a brand that's trustworthy, to enriching lives. And enriching lives is really interesting and exciting because it's about making our lives better, more inspired, faster. And this is where giving some examples really comes into play. And I'll, I'll back up to what I said before, that I'll talk about some of the brands that surprised us that came out as good corporate citizens because this is very much a lot to do with enrichment. So Apple... Much to our surprise, in 2011, was the number one brand named as a good corporate citizen. And you may or may not remember, in 2011, Apple was being lambasted for its supplier relationships. So the fact that it came up as, as the number one good corporate citizen by far in both the U.S. and the U.K. was really surprising to us. But when you read through why people said it was, they said, Apple has transformed the way I communicate with people across the globe. Apple has brought joy into my life by bringing music into it 24-7. So what Apple is doing is enriching our lives. 
other brands like Mrs. Myers, which is um, a household cleaning brand. They have some other products, but primarily a household cleaning brand in the U.S. Mrs. Myers enriches people's lives. Its ingredients are, are relatively natural, and where they're not, people are okay with it because the brand is open up front and trustworthy about it. They're honest about it. Um, Mrs. Myers, people told us when they clean with Mrs. Myers, we had people telling us that um, they feel like they're in a French lavender field and it makes cleaning a great experience. It makes it more fun. So this is about enriching our lives and making you know day, a daily task more inspiring. Then you move from enrichment into responsibility. So trust and enrichment are about what I call me brands. And what we learned in our research is that brands that that are thought of as good citizens enrich both us personally and solve our personal problems as well as address our larger concerns about the world. So they run across a me to we continuum. And steps one and two, trust and enrichment, are about me. And brands that sit at those steps strategically deliver problems and solve my problems. Now that doesn't mean they shouldn't glide back and forth and also solve we problems. Step three, which is responsibility, is the pivot point between being a me brand and a we brand. And that makes perfect sense. And again, this was not contrived. This is what emerged from the research. And responsibility is our more classic notions of corporate social responsibility. But what we learn that's a slight twist on that, and you start seeing it when you look at the news today and a lot of the issues that are going on with diversity inclusion, the Me Too movement, is that people said you can be a responsible brand and be bettering the environment, fixing your supply chain, but at the end of the day, I don't care if you're doing that if you're not treating your employees well and fairly. Yeah. So treating employees well and fairly is the number one goal that people want to see businesses achieve to be thought of as moving into the we space. And it makes sense. Um, Businesses, in our research, we learned that um, people give business permission to comment on things related to civil liberties and social justice, but they don't want businesses to be overtly political in responsibility. Um, today, what they're allowing brands to stretch to in responsibility is speaking up on the environment because regulation is being turned back and that disturbs people. But again, if they're not first treating employees well and fairly, it doesn't matter. And you think about a brand like Walmart, for example, that sits at step one in trust, and people trust Walmart to deliver a low price. And Walmart as a business is doing amazing things in its supply chain and, and has some amazing sustainability goals that it has achieved. However, it doesn't matter to people because they still think of Walmart as not treating their employees well. And it's interesting because Walmart recently had an announcement that they were raising their hourly wage by a dollar, and I tweeted about this. And it's fascinating to see the tweets I got back, and it was all about, oh, well, they're doing that because they laid off people in my area, or it was about some negative treatment to employees. So it takes a lot once you've been known as not treating employees very well to flip that. And you really have to work hard at that. And you can't claim these other things until you do that. And a brand like Walmart is smart because it isn't talking about these great things it's doing. Although um, I think a lot of people would like to know about it because you might be more apt to shop there if you're not a regular shopper. 
Um, but it is interesting in that. So we have trust, enrichment, responsibility, pivot point between being me and we, and then we move into the we space. And we space begins with step four, which is about community. And it's about connecting people through shared values. It's not just about, you know, social media communities, but it's about connecting your employees and the local community um, through do good initiatives, through having a community day where you work side by side, fixing a problem in your community about things you care about. It's about B2B communities. I talk in the book about a brand called the Forest Stewardship Council. And oh, the I love Forest that. Stewardship I love when you do you that. You love in the that? Book. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You but know. I love when you, you do can that interrupt, book. please. That's why I said, please stop me when I keep going. Oh, no. Um, I, I'm only interrupting <laughs> to acknowledge your greatness in that. But that was such a good, I loved when you said that in the book. <laughs> Yeah, the Forest Stewardship Council is amazing, and they not only certify businesses that have paper supplied from, from sustainable forestry practices, but they also connect these businesses together to learn and talk about them um, and learn from each other. You have another thing that I talk about, not, not in the chapter on a community, but earlier in the book, B-Labs, and B-Labs is a certification for companies that have a commitment to a social purpose and a social mission, and, and B-Labs has an assessment where companies can learn how well they're doing, but they also bring the companies that already are certified together with other companies to learn from each other. So community has a big B2B aspect. It's not only about how you interact with your employees or your customers. There's a Brazilian brand called Natura, which is like the Brazilian Avon, and they educate the women who sell their products. Uh, they have a huge biodiversity focus, and they've been around for many, many years, so it's not trendy, and they care a lot about the Brazilian Amazonian forest, and they bring people together who care about these things. Indeed, they just bought the body shop recently, so they're now bringing that back into the body shop, and they own Aesop. So then you go from community into contribution. And contribution is through my association with you, through buying your products and services, through being an employee, you're making my impact bigger than it could be on my own. You're making me feel better about myself than I am. And brands like Warby Parker that, that are um, socially conscious brands and have a true one-to-one -one, one -one model as part of their purchase – uh, part of their, sorry, value proposition are clearly brands that fit in contribution, but you have other brands, a uh, brand like seventh generation. People really feel like they're bettering the planet when they buy seventh generation products over another product. And the brand that's one of my favorites, just because it's such an interesting story that fits into contribution is a brand called Kenko, which is a coffee brand in the UK owned by Mondelez, which is a big consumer goods company. And Kenko has an initiative called Coffee and Gangs. And in Honduras, which is the number one or number two murder capital every year in the world, when children or teens hit a certain age, they have three choices. They have a choice to join a gang, leave the country, or be killed. And Kenko has given them a fourth choice. And that fourth choice is apply to us to learn to be a coffee grower. And they give scholarships and educate 30 to 50. I don't remember the exact number. It's been growing every year. Mm. Um, teens to become coffee growers in Honduras. Now, whilst the social impact of that is small, 
the impact on the people whose lives they're, they're influencing is huge. And can you imagine, step back, and I talk about this in the book, step back if Kenko created some sort of consortium amongst all different coffee manufacturers, coffee producers, and across all of South America, all these companies worked with Kenko and, and the NGO that supplies uh, the program and expanded it across South America, the, the amount of people's lives you would impact would start changing a continent. So it's really, there's so many exciting notions that go into this. And the most important thing is there's not one way of doing this. Every company does it in the way that exemplifies their larger purpose, their, their greater raison d'etre. And, and the way they run across these five steps is unique to who they are mm. and unique to what their business is about. I lo- First of all, I love that you spent that time to do that because that, that was the reason why I wanted you to do that because I saw that that was essential. That was the framework uh, a lot of times for the book. And as the listeners listen, I want, I want her to understand that that's, you know, there's a step-by-step process to this and that if they do follow that, they can see how trust can end up leading up to contribution. And um, it's so important. So thank you so much for, for taking time to go through that. I um I do have one question though. So someone's reading this. Oh, I'm sure you have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> so someone someone listens to this and they think, well, I do agree. I, I think that, that that's that's amazing. And they might even say, well, that's amazing in theory. But how do you balance the social and financial values? Because you know you hear all these stories where people talk about, yeah, it's great to have those, but we still have to make profit. Uh, and you know this is going to take away from my whole making money type thing. So how do you deal with that person that's in leadership well, that thinks that way? And, and, and there are a lot of people who historically have thought that way and who continue to think that way. But the reality is, is doing good can no longer be thought of as a cost of doing business. Mm, it has to be as an investment, investment into your brand, an investment into corporate reputation, an investment into your people because employees more and more are demanding that businesses behave ethically in every manner. It's about an ethos, and it's about creating an ethos of trust across the organization. And when you have that, you actually enhance profitability. Um, Importantly, in today's world, more and more investors are calling for this. And you have Larry Fink of BlackRock, who first started speaking about long-termism in his CEO letter about two years ago, and this year started saying that businesses will only survive if they start seeing their responsibility to society and start exhibiting corporate social responsibility. So when investors and when the head of the largest um, investment management company in the world is calling for you to do this, hang on a minute, this is about profitability. Yeah. No, I love that. And um, yeah, I, I do think, you know, one of my favorite things is uh, is convincing people that it's possible to be a good person and a good leader. I think a lot of people like to make it look like you have to choose one. It's mutually exclusive. And maybe that comes from my, uh, you know, exposure to, you know, two military dictatorships uh, when I was younger. And I just sort of hated the idea that you have to sort of sacrifice something to, to do something good for others. And I love that your whole book is actually called Do Good. And that was the mo- that was the thing I noticed the first the first time I, I uh, your book came across my way was do good do good because I do honestly think that that concept is lost in people where people think that the idea of doing good means you have to sacrifice 
um, something or you can't have enough of an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I talk about that shifting notion that we're shifting off that in chapter one, I lay out sort of the trends that have been going on and that have accelerated since the turn of millennium. And the thing that's really important in having spoken to people for, I don't want to admit how many years <laughs> relative to their relationship with companies is Early around the turn of the millennium, what we started noticing was the, the idea that technology started allowing us to cut and paste things together, started allowing us to see that we could have two things that used to be opposite sitting side by side. You yeah. know, and, and you see and you see this through the notion that today it's very common for someone to wear H and M and Chanel, where thirty years ago no one would own those two brands at the same time yeah. or if they did they certainly would admit them admit it and wear it on the same day yeah. and this notion of cutting pasting you know and mashups there's no reason anymore why things that used to be opposite can't sit side by side and it, it, you know a lot of uh, people investigating how our brains have changed through digital start seeing how these things exist coexist and and because we put things side by side that didn't belong there digitally our mind starts allowing concepts mm. in mm. bigger ways to sit side by side. And, and to your point, you know, it used to be you had to choose between power or money or power or love, yeah. you know, money or doing good. And now, because we're used to cutting things and pasting them side by side, we live in a world, I call it the world of also. So yeah. it's no longer either or, it's about and and also. And There's no also. reason we can't put these things together. Exactly. I love it. I love it. Well, okay. So if we're doing, if we're living in that world of and and also, can you give us a few uh, examples of lifestyle brands like you know, that are doing a good job of this? Mm -hmm. And I started giving you a few that are that are interesting when I was talking about the the yeah. five steps. But yeah. I'll back up even to some interesting um, ones. A brand that sits and and people identify as sitting at at step one trust, but as I see making a bigger contribution is a financial services brand. And the brands that I talk about in the book, which are some of the ones I'll bring up now, are not brands that I've chosen. This is These are brands that came up in the research. As a matter of fact, a few brands that I wanted to put into the book, I couldn't because they didn't come up in the research. <laughs> so this is based upon what people told us. So SunTrust is, is a bank based out of Atlanta. And a few years back, they started this initiative called On Up, and they recognized that Americans were really feeling stressed about managing their money. Um, I'm sure uh, you probably feel as stressed as I do. We're all constantly concerned about how we manage our money. And to help people across the country, not just their customers, they created this digital space uh, that is a bit of a community, although it's not so much of a trading community, it's more a learning community, where they give advice to people on how to manage their money. And in combination with this, they then donate money to organizations that help people in lower socioeconomic um, areas learn to manage finances and, and better their control over their lives through their control over their money. So that's, a, and they foster trust as a result of that. So that's a brand that's not a lifestyle brand. It's a financial services brand that has actually put itself in the space of trust and contribution at the same time. You look at another brand, um, Ikea, which is more of a lifestyle brand. And Ikea to me actually belonged at step three responsibility, but 
where participants in our research put it was step two, enrichment. And IKEA's premise, and, and IKEA's founder actually just uh, passed away in the past few weeks. Um, yeah, um, he, his whole vision was how to make things accessible to the average person that historically had only been accessible to the wealthy. And many in, in Sweden actually attribute to him to helping move the country forward in its, its stance on being more democratic in its approach to daily life. Um, what, what he did was embed in IKEA this notion of making things better and making them more accessible to everybody. And IKEA has transformed people's homes and they've made their lives more interesting. And you look at their website and they have all these projects going where they're trying to understand how people live in different countries and how to help people flow in their day better in their homes as a result of the different ways people live in countries. So IKEA is a brand that enriches our lives through giving us affordable products, but underneath and behind this is this whole set of research that they're doing to understand things. They're also hugely responsible. And the thing about IKEA that's a really amazing lesson for any company and really exhibits the notion of brand citizenship is that they see it as a continuous journey. You're never done with brand citizenship. Each time society changes its view on something, each time another company does something better, the bar gets raised. So it's an ongoing journey that we keep learning. And IKEA has had its, its scandals, but each time it has a scandal about a product that's not good, it goes and fixes it. And the one that stands out the most to me that really transformed the furniture industry is a particle board. When IKEA was first using particle board, it had formaldehyde in the glue to keep the particles together. And people started complaining, and in Germany, it became a big scandal that IKEA's particle board had formaldehyde, and it was harmful to people. So IKEA went out to find a new supplier, and what they discovered when they went out to find a new supplier was that there wasn't a supplier that made particle board that didn't have this glue that had formaldehyde in it. So what did they do? They didn't give up because particle board is clearly less expensive to use to build furniture and would make furniture more accessible to people that couldn't have it otherwise. They worked with chemical companies in Germany, BASF is the one that comes to mind for me, but there were a few others, to develop a new form of particle board that used a glue that did not have formaldehyde. And this transformed the entire furniture industry. So that's a really fascinating way of how they enriched their customers' lives and even enriched their people's lives in general by transforming an industry that helps us live in our homes more more comfortably yeah wow um i gotta say you know you talk about ikea it takes me back i one of the countries i grew up in was sweden so uh ah. that, that was a lot of what my mom and dad used to everything that we ordered was from ikea and even though i was maybe a little too young at the time they, they were always constructing a lot of DIY projects, and I would watch them as I was learning English. <laughs> so um, so um, thanks for, for that trip down memory lane. We're getting ready to close, but I, I have a few. You, I could talk to you forever because there's so many things I want to pick your brain on. And one of them is this, is, is how businesses can walk that fine line between supporting causes and taking a political position or public stance. 
This is something. And, and, yeah, yeah it's a really important issue, and it's something I touched on before when I started talking about yeah, responsibility. Yeah. And um, what what I find interesting about this notion is that you know businesses, marketers first started segmenting target audiences based on demographics. Then came psychographics, which are about your attitude, your aspirations, and other psychological criteria. And then they pushed psychographics further and made targeting people based on lifestyle and interests in the 80s. So when you step back and start considering it, the next phase after this for starting to segment and target audience really would be based on ideals. It's a logical step. So what's happened in the political landscape is I believe it's accelerated this evolution and a nascent trend in there. And as I said before, the notion of civil liberties and social justice are part of step three, um, behaving responsibly and treating employees well and fairly. Um, And companies, before they step up and start speaking about civil liberties and social justice, need to step back and check what their own policies are. Because you can't take a stand on something if your policies aren't representing the stand you're taking. And people are really smart today, and they, they notice marketing ploys. And a company which, was, which is thought of as responsible, and which I highlight in responsibility, yeah. um, in the book H&M, has recently had a problem with this. Yeah. Um, and they're not alone in this. We've had a bunch of advertising going on at the moment where – Companies are trying to latch on to the zeitgeist and reflect these cultural shifts and how people are feeling. And they're being more diverse in, in the people they're representing in their advertising, but they're not always stepping back and seeing how they're representing these people. And H&M recently had an issue with that with a young boy that was wearing this sweatshirt yeah. that had something about it as a monkey on it. And and you need to step back and think, and how can a company that's so focused on creating circular fashion and really doing a good job of it, not have noticed that. Uh, Kellogg's recently had an ad where there, it was a drawing on, or it was a drawing on the corn pops box and the sole brown corn pop was a janitor. So in a way, without recognizing it, they represented a stereotype rather than uh, a push for diversity and inclusion. So you need to step back and think about that. And clearly the Kendall um, Jenner ad with Pepsi is one of the bigger ones that people are, yeah, where it was undermining for people this notion of Black Lives Matter. You can't solve it by handing a Pepsi to the police officer. And what's interesting is each of these companies, H&M, Pepsi, and Kellogg's, all are actually really responsible brands. But they've tripped up in these things. And I think walking that fine line um, between supporting causes and taking a political position or a public stance is about paying attention to the detail, stepping back and looking at everything. Because you will be called out today and you will be called out in a big way, even if you are a good company. It's not just companies that behave irresponsibly that have these issues. In fact, companies that behave more responsibly and are known for this are held to a higher standard. So they have to even be more careful about it. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, I mentioned earlier before the call that a lot of the work I do is on diversity, inclusion, communication, and a lot of companies. And, you know, we've had Uber recently. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, H&M. We've got uh, several other, Pepsi, a lot of all these companies that you mentioned. 
And that's immediately what people always say. We always talk about the idea of how do you make those decisions? How do those decisions get that far up the chain without uh, you checking with people? And a lot of times, yes, I, I do agree that they do that. You know, some of these companies might actually be better responsible, more corporate, uh, corporate responsibly than uh, we think they are. But at the same time, it does speak to the, the idea that they dropped the ball on, on mm-hmm. making sure that they had decision makers in place who reached the audience that they're trying to reach. Right. So I, I, I'm, <laughs> it's often I, I have a conflicted feeling with that because. On the one hand, I can't see that they've done some good, but on the other hand, and I'm, I'm always wondering, how do you make decisions on uh, a brand for a, a group of people that you don't even have the same, a representative of in the, in the, in a boardroom? It, it seems very presumptuous. Uh, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. And that's why I think where I step back is to me, brand citizenship is a five step model, but yeah. more importantly, it's an ethos. For sure, no, and and uh, and it's yeah. ethos that has to imbue every every aspect of a company. It has to be reflected in everything you do, and that's why that notion of starting with trust and creating trust and creating a culture of trust—not just trust between you and your customers or you and your suppliers, but trust across your company and amongst employees and and across level, you know, up and down levels of an organization. Trust is the essential step to create an ethos that's yeah. all about good citizenship. Good. good. I love that because um, I, I definitely, I'm one of the people that, you know, I, I do work with companies that have made these type of mistakes and I'm always as honest with them as, as I can be. I'm always like, you've got to make sure that this is, like you said, it's an ethos, but it's a system in place. Like mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't make it a silo. You can't drop the ball on mm-hmm. every level. The idea of what you're preaching is that this is a culture that everyone adopts. It's not something that exists in one area and not another area. If you want to be a change agent, right. if you want to be successful, if you want to be, you have to make it cross disciplinary. Like it has to go across several teams, right? So, no, I, completely. Yeah. It has to be integrated. Yeah. And, and it, it's not the purview of one department or one group to manage. It has to be everybody's responsibility and everybody has to have that sensibility as they go about their day and understand how they contribute yeah. to the company being better and the company doing good. Yeah, good, good. I love it. You have an interest in, I did some research on you. Yes, I do do a lot of research <laughs> and guests. You, oh, you God. have an interesting theory with Devil Wears uh, Prada. Um <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> I think you, 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 when I was reading, you used this as an example of um, important business uh, business principles. So I'm I'm curious to hear what Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway uh, taught you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Someone, it's an interview someone did for me actually related to the book. They they asked me what movie represented my business philosophy or something like that. I can't remember the exact question, and. Um, you know, I step back and I sort of like, I don't know, but one of my favorite movies is Devil, um, Devil Wears Prada. And it's because it exhibits so many things. And whilst it's easy to put Meryl Streep's character, who I won't name in real life, as the villain, she made tough choices too. And you see that in there, that she made choices. And to me, the, the thing about the movie illustrates whether it's Meryl Streep's character and Hathaway's character, how each day as we go to work, we have the opportunity to make a choice. And that choice we make defines who we are in that day and defines to ourselves 
many times who we are becoming. And the film really exhibits that and it exhibits the idea of how you can or cannot work together with your colleagues, how you can or cannot treat your subordinates. Mm. And to me, it just illustrates so many things. But the biggest thing it illustrates is everybody has to make a choice. And they step back and that choice has implications for not only how they are seen or how they act at work, it has implications for their lives. And that's what, to me, the movie is amazing about that. And I don't think either choice is right or wrong. I think it's you have to make which choice is right for you and understand that it will impact you beyond the office. Yeah, no, no, it's good. I think in movies, so I, I was excited when I, when I saw that. And I have very obscure comparisons that I make sometimes with movies and TV shows. And I, I'll say a movie and people will be like, what? How does that relate to the concept? And then I'll dive into it and people are like, oh, I never saw it that way. <laughs> so um, I, I love when I see that uh, because. I, yeah, I no, that. I agree with that. And I've even used Mary Poppins in a corporate 50 boardroom. There so. you go. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, we're getting ready to close here. But a lot of the listeners are entrepreneurs. They're aspiring change makers. They, they are. They want to scale change and impact. And a lot of times. You know, um, I guess whenever I have guests like you, I want to sort of give you an opportunity to talk about your turning points, the, mo the moment where you knew that you had no other choice but to follow your path. And the reason why I want, I want to give you this opportunity to do this is because a lot of times in my experience and, and um, experience when I talk to listeners, there's a moment when they fear um, the, the choice they're about to make because they are aware that they will be alone on the journey for a little bit and they're aware that it's very risky. But I always like people like you to talk about how, even though it's risky, it's worth it. So I'm just curious if you could talk about your turning point and when you knew you were going to be this voice for people. Well, I probably, it was when I came out of the birth canal. Um, <laughs> um, I've always been a bit like that. Uh, I've always been a bit outspoken. And part of my turning points at work was learning how to um, do that in a way that didn't put people off. Do that in a way people, you know, heard your message in the right framework. And that takes maturity over time and learning. Um, it's pretty much from the day I started working, I was a, acted as a change agent. And being a change agent is a hard job because you get all the blame and typically your boss gets all the credit. But it just happens to be the path I've always wanted to pursue. I'm really not good at status quo. So the notion of pushing things forward and progressing has always been part of who I am. Um, I think the turning point relative to this was in 2011 when we had this nascent finding in research. I could have ignored it. But because I personally volunteer, I've, I've personally, in my personal life, I've, I've advocated for issues. I do things like that. And it was almost as if there was a cross between my professional life and my personal life. And I've, for me, brand has always been about motivating change, about making an organization better, more of what it is in its best way and helping it make its people better in their best ways. So when this nascent trend was under there, I could have ignored it. 
and I didn't. And I, I invested a significant amount. I granted myself money uh, that didn't have an immediate return on investment for it. And to me, the return on investment of, that, of this research that I did over three years is helping to progress society and helping business to step up yeah. and be more responsible. So I think the notion of changing the world for me has always been part of who I am. And um, what I would say to any entrepreneur is, you know, a lot of times the world tries to stop you from beating your drum, but it keeps coming up if that's who you are. And you have to find the way to do it gracefully and, you know, yes, yeah, some people can go up there, and, and you come from conflict culture, so you've seen this. People have to go up there and take a big, loud stand. But sometimes working behind the scenes and doing it a little bit more quietly and shifting things over time helps create change more. But don't stop the drum from beating. Don't stop the drum from beating. Wow, love that. Thank you for doing that. Another thing I love about what you do is that you, your career has been emphasized by the relationships you've built. And you, you, more than many people I know, you exemplify the fact that relationships matter. Whether it's when you're consulting, whether you're, you're working with research or, or you're writing this book, you really are essentially um, building relationships with people and you, you've mastered the art of communication. So I, I, love, I love how you applied that in the book and also I love how you applied that today in the interview today. Oh, well, great. I think I'm going to have to have you come along next time I speak and you can introduce me. Yes, I'll be more than happy <laughs> Mastering to Mastering the art of communication. What more can I ask for? You're unhappy. Uh, you've seen Devil Wears Prada, but you've never seen it this way. We've got That's Ann right. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, the last question I normally ask my um, audience is my mission statement. Use your difference to make a difference. So how do you use your difference to make a difference? I think I've probably reiterated that over and over. Yes, you but have. I but think, I think it might be. I think it's good. acknowledging <laughs> how you use your difference to make a difference yes. is acknowledging your difference. Mm. And it's very easy to allow people to suppress that difference. But acknowledge it, accept it, embrace it. Don't fight it because it's so easy to fight your difference. But if you actually acknowledge it and embrace it, it will show you the pathway. Yeah. It's, uh, you, you did answer the question. I always like to ask it in, in a way because people always bring it in a succinct uh, manner. And it's, it, it alludes to the fact that you said, don't let others beat your drum. So um, thank you for answering that question. Where can we find you? Where can uh, we get your book? Where can we connect with you? Um, my book is in multiple uh, online locations. I'm not sure where it is in the store. I, should, I keep wanting to see it somewhere, but Barnes & Noble has it online. Amazon yeah. has it online. It's online at Target, mm -hmm. IndieBound, a whole host of places. Um, uh, where you can find me is at brandcitizenship.com. Uh, my company name is 164th.com. It's a fraction spelled out, but brandcitizenship.com is easier. I'm on LinkedIn as Ann Barr Thompson. I'm on Twitter as Ann, at AnnBT. Uh, I'm on Google+, Plus, but I don't really use it. And Facebook is personal for me. So. <laughs> All right. Um, I, just, I just sent you a request on LinkedIn. But thank you so much. This has been... Uh, an education of sorts, like I always like to say. Uh, thank you for taking us through the journey of what it means to be a good brand citizen. Can't wait to get more people to be activated as change agents. And I uh, really want to thank you for your time and your work. Yeah, no, thank you. And for anyone that reads Do Good, please send me your comments because we'll 
looking to continue the research and uh, it, it is about the collaborative and the collective. So your comments will help move things forward. Absolutely. Please do. And ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.